Hello, everyone, and welcome to Try It, You'll Like It, the podcast where I, Joseph Finn, and Amy Watts, I'll say hello, Amy. Hello, Amy. And Randy Perry, say hello, Randy. Hello, Randy. We get together, we hash out uh, some pieces of uh, literature and film that we've chosen each for each other around a theme each uh, each uh, session. We're going to be doing this every other week. So, for this dry run, we chose one theme and only one movie. No book this time around, but at the end of the show, we'll announce what we'll be watching and reading over the next two weeks. So, Amy, this is your choice, so why don't you let us know what we watched? Uh, well, I hope you already know what you watched. Um, you watched The Perks of Being a Wallflower um, at, around the rough sort of theme of firsts, and... Uh, you know, you have a young man in this who experienced quite a lot of firsts, including, spoiler alert, first kiss. So I picked it, and I realized when I sat down to watch it earlier today, or actually rewatch it, that um, I managed to pick us a movie that's about a straight guy, a straight girl, and a gay guy. Just like us. Joseph, you're gay? It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> The funny thing is, the there's a bit of ambiguity in this movie as to when it actually takes place, but I but I think uh, not necessarily actually because it's set in 1992, which is the book was written fairly contemporaneous, um, but the movie he did make it a period okay. piece. I th- I was thinking it might be a little earlier just because there's still a good amount of uh, cassette tapes and boombox action going on. Hey, I was, okay, I graduated high school in 1993, and we were still doing mixtapes in high school. So, Certainly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's appropriate. Right, and I, I started high school in 1987, so I was a little ahead of this, but this is just about right for me as well. I did find it interesting in the movie that there's no uh, standard indicators, ha- happy prom class of 1991 or anything like that. It's all spring dance or something like that. Right. I mean, they don't give you a specific time date. So here, let me introduce the movie just a little bit um, for people who haven't seen it, which is that it's based on a beloved uh, young adult book by, hold on, I am going to butcher this poor gentleman's name. <laughs> Dan, Stephen Chbosky is how I'm going to say it. Um, I don't know if it's Chbosky or Kabosky. It's C-H-B-O-S-K-Y. And he wrote the book. Uh, back in the 90s, like I said, and I have a memory of this book as being one of the first kind of young adult books that sort of ushered in this era we're in now with young adult books of, of being darker, of dealing with not just serious topics, but dealing with really serious topics and in less than a glossy after school special kind of way. So it was kind of, to me, a a forerunner of all that. And it stayed in development as a movie for a long, long time until eventually the author ended up writing the screenplay and directing it himself. And that's the movie we saw. It's set in Pittsburgh in 1992. And the setup is you start with this kid, Charlie, and he's getting ready to start high school and he's not happy about it. And it doesn't take long before he gets he ingratiates himself with a couple of really kind of weird, fun, cool seniors by the name of Sam for Samantha and Patrick. And they sort of take the little child under their wing and welcome him to their island of misfit toys. And then the rest of the movie is basically that school year, his first year of high school, coinciding with their last school of high school. Uh would you add anything other than that to 
basic description, guys? Well, I would say that uh, the way you describe it is entirely right. And I like that wherever this film goes, and it goes in some interesting directions, it's not trying to reinvent the wheel of a first time in high school experience. In fact, that opening structure with him going to his school and meeting new people, it reminds me completely of, of all things, Mean Girls, which goes in a completely different direction. Mm. But, and it doesn't have the going between two groups. I'm sorry, uh, Mean Girls has the uh, split between two groups part, which Perks doesn't. But it also has the uh, finding these friends in this weird little offshoot in the lunchroom. The... Um... Question I have before we get too much further is, Randy, being Canadian, how different do you think the American high school experience, which is sort of what Joe and I had, um, although I would say he and I had very different, Joe, were you in the suburbs or were you in Chicago proper for high school? I was in a north suburb. I went to a uh, Jesuit high school uh, called uh, Loyola Academy, college preparatory high, high school. See, I think so. To- totally private school. I think I probably had the closest experience to what these kids did because I went to, you know, the run-of-the-mill public school, about twelve hundred students. We had a big football team. I mean, and again, since this was set in basically my high school years, I recognized so much uh, of what was there. But so, Randy, what, what's kind of different for you? I mean, how much did this mirror your high school experience? Uh, it felt really real. Uh, I went. I was in high school from '88 to '91, and I went to the high school in my hometown. There was there was one, um, so it was, it was from a small town, and uh, we had I think altogether probably about 800 students in the high school. Um, so there wasn't really you know a lot of choice, and it was everybody, regardless of your um, abilities, interests, uh, career plans, things like that. We're all in this, this one school that I guess the, the big difference is probably the football culture, which is just something that was really alien to me in Canada, which could also be part of the reason why I never got into Friday night lights. Um, but yeah, it, 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 I think a lot of the experiences in this movie are very universal and it definitely felt real to me, even if some of the specifics might've been different. I should note uh, that I do have one odd uh, flip to my high school experience. I went to an all-guys high school. Oh, yeah, that, that, that is a bit different, yes, than what we saw. <laughs> <laughs> so, from the opening credits, I, I was fairly sure I was going to like this movie. I mean, and that was true when I saw it in the theater. When it, That's when I originally saw it. Uh, because the cast in the opening credits are pretty much a list of people Amy likes. It's like, oh, there's Dylan McDermott. Oh, there's Kate Walsh. Hey. Are you oh. sure it's Dylan McDermott? Dermot Marley, Dylan McDermott. Shit. Dermot McDibble? It's Dylan McDermott, I promise you. It's the practice guy. <laughs> or as I like to think of him, the crying masturbator. No. Um, <laughs> Joan Kuzak, Mae Whitman. I mean, huh? I, just kept, I just kept seeing all these people that I'm like, oh, I like that person. I like that person. Melanie Linsky, who I love. Uh who ended up being Aunt Helen in the film. I mean, I just oh. so many things that uh so many people that I love. So I was like, okay, I'm with you movie. You 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 found people I liked. Oh, before we get into anything else, it was so great to see Melanie Linsky again after years of her being lost in the wilderness on that horrible two and a half men show. <laughs> yeah. I know she probably made good money on it, but ugh. Well, I mean, it's just so funny because, you know, 
heavenly creatures, you have Kate Winslet who becomes Miss Superstar, and then what happened to the other girl? Well, her name's Melanie Linsky, and she makes really good movies that nobody sees. Um, well, only one of those two women has married someone named Ned Rock and Roll, and I think, you know. <laughs> you know, I, I follow Melanie Linsky on Twitter, and I think she's probably okay with not having made that life choice. <laughs> uh, and, only, and only one of them has been on yet another failed Tim Minear TV show. Ah, uh, yes, Drive. Back to Wallflower. Come on, stay on topic here, kids. Um have you met us? <laughs> Not, no, actually, I haven't met Randy. Um, so at the very beginning, the kid says, Charlie, uh, high school or middle school, which he, he, thinks that middle, he thinks that high school is worse. And I have to say, no, you think that because it's the first day, but trust me, and you're still kind of, you know, freshman year isn't that far away from middle school in some ways. By the time you're an adult, you'll look back and you'll realize middle school was always the worst. Middle school was the pits for everybody, always. Really? Yes. I would agree. Elementary school was fine. Really? Yeah. I don't know. You're the first person I've ever met who didn't hate middle school. No, mine, mine was fine. Wow. Uh, well, you were. Were you still with all boys? No, nope, it was uh, co-ed. Wow. Oh, my middle school was awful. It was vicious and horrible, and there was ostracizing and threats of random violence and 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 that was just the girls and i mean oof. high school was a lot better because high school was bigger so there were more ways to find your niche which niche niche your group which is i think kind of what this movie is about is you know how at that age your family is kind of you know you've got your parents who are old and dorky and in my case i had a younger brother who i didn't understand at all and you know i could go to school and meet other people that were like me and could find me and could and we could hang out and we could talk about the books or the movies or the things that we liked and i I think this movie really captures that you know given the structure where we see it from the very beginning of charlie getting adopted by the older kids i think that the other thing about this movie i have to say i read the book a long time ago and i didn't like it and i was very disappointed because i'd heard people over the years talk about what a wonderful book it was and i think part of i looked up the differences between the movie and the book and we can talk about that a little later um but I think the big thing was the person that read the book was different than the person that saw the movie. The person that read the book was a, you know, a married woman in her twenties and a person that the person that saw the movie is a single woman in her late thirties. And in that respect, watching these pretentious as fuck high schoolers was more endearing now than it was 10 years ago. Ten years ago, I just thought they were immature and awful. And I might still think they're immature and awful, but it's with a little bit of wince and, oh, I remember when we were like that. So. Oh, to- I totally understand that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I remember back in high school, you've got, the, I was one of the, uh, you know, you occasionally go to a Rocky Horror show and we're so much cooler because, uh, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not into the jock culture. Which, to be fair, at my high school, my high school was a rather competitive high school. The Chucks were smart as hell. Oh, well, I, I went to, we won't get in, I went to um, Parallel Universe High School. Um, the top of our social strata was, I'm not kidding you, the Glee Club. Uh, yeah. 
Okay. They then. had Glee Club at 7.30 in the morning, so it wouldn't conflict with football practice after school because so many football players were in both. Were the they any good? Yes. They got. Yeah. They had primetime TV yeah. specials. All right. Wait, wait, hold, hold on. Do they have a great cheesy name? Well, we are. We were the Central High School Bobcats, so it was the Bobcat Company. It's uh, boring. Yeah, eh, it wasn't cheesy. No. Eh. But look, so how did I'll ask kind of the question I usually ask of my book clubs, which is, did you like the film? Very much, yes. As did I. Did I, like I, I thought it was very genuine, and uh, I well, I had a reservation, which we'll get into later because it's an important reservation. Okay. But overall, I liked it. What did you like about it, Randy? I really liked um, Emma Watson. Yes. She is quickly, although we've known her as an actress for 12 or 13 years now, she has really grown into um, being an actress. And I think... and. And this might sound shallow, and I don't mean it to sound shallow, but I think she's got a face for movies. I just can't take my eyes off her when she's on screen. And you know who she reminded me of sometimes in this movie, in the face and in facial expressions, was Ali Sheedy. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. Like, um, there, I can't remember, there was one line reading where I was just like, that could have 100% been Ali Sheedy in The Breakfast Club saying that line, and I would have bought it. I I mean, and yeah. that, I like Ali Sheedy a lot, so that's a compliment. No, I I, I, I can see that. Yeah, and it's just so fascinating because I mean, she has literally grown up on movie screens in front of us, uh, being in those eight Harry Potter movies. And I just keep thinking back to there's that scene in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire where they're going to the Yule Ball, and she gets that great entrance coming down the stairs when Harry and Ron initially don't really recognize her. Yes, and yes. She just. She just looks so, um, and she's got that smirk on her face that just makes her look grown up in a way. And I don't mean, obviously don't mean that in, you know, a pervy way because she was like 15 at the time or whatever, but she just, she just looks so great in that scene. And I think a lot of that kind of carries forward into the later Harry Potter movies and now into the stuff that she's doing after Harry Potter. Coincidentally, Randy, uh, we were watching a, a friend's daughter on uh, Saturday and she wanted to watch Goblet of Fire. And I hadn't seen that scene in quite a while. And you're absolutely right about how her entrance works there. And suddenly, whoa, this is a different person here. Yeah. However, I, I would love to know where Emma Thompson, uh, I know she did some college here in the U.S. I would love to know which friend she borrowed the accent from. Although I have to say, I thought her accent was pretty good. I mean, in terms oh, of... Oh, no, I'm, I'm complimenting it. Okay. I was going to say, in <laughs> terms of being, uh, you know, it didn't slip... And she didn't, there weren't, there weren't certain telltale words. Um, and I find a lot of times this, with actors working not in their own accent, that their accent will falter or disappear completely in scenes of great emotional intensity. And so even when those scenes happened in this film, her American accent stayed true. And so I, I thought that was really impressive. It was a good flat um, uh, Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio accent, basically. So as the movie goes on, yes, basically, um, I would like to make the supposition as he discovers he has a really good English teacher played by Paul Rudd. And I have two points to make about Paul Rudd's advanced English class. First, Paul Rudd is obviously a vampire. We're all agreed on this. That's the only possible explanation, yes. 
Second off, there is one person in the class that I thought this was a bit of clumsy going for a joke bit that I just need to highlight. When she says, who is, when he's trying to get people to say, who is the greatest British novelist? Easily Dickens by his description. She says, Shakespeare? No, Shakespeare didn't write novels. Like, you're in an advanced English class? I just thought that was going for a cheap joke and uh, took me out of the movie a little bit. Oh, well, I figured she was just the kid that was just like, oh, shit, nobody's saying anything. I'll throw out something even if I know it's wrong. I didn't, that no, didn't take me out of the movie. I, I can see that. You're nitpicking. Of course um, I'm nitpicking. The, the, thing that, the thing that interested me was, so last night my roommate and I watched Beautiful Creatures, which was so much campy fun for the first two-thirds and then really boring for the last third. So we watched Beautiful Creatures last night, and in that they were reading To Kill a Mockingbird, and I just thought it was so funny because I'm thinking – how many high school? That's just so true. How many high schools across America? Ninth grade, you read To Kill a Mockingbird. I have my high school copy uh, right next to me on the shelf right now. Is that true? What do you read in ninth grade in Canada, Randy? <laughs> we, um, I, th- I think some English classes, mine didn't. Some English classes do read To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, we had a few Canadian lit books, and I figure Alice Munro is probably big on that. We read, I think, just one of her one of her short stories. Yeah, um, I think it was also part, you know, what the uh, the school had available in the the, the book uh, depository. So it wasn't there was like some really old ratty copies of like Who Has Seen the Wind and stuff like that. That um... wait, you still call it a book depository <laughs> up in Canada? No, that was just the word that popped into my head. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say bookstore, but no, we didn't buy books, so it was just what they had in the the book room. Sure. Let's just go ahead and say right now that you know from here on out, here be spoilers, okay? Absolutely. Um, if you haven't seen Perks of Being a Wallflower, well, go rent it and then come back and listen to the rest of this, uh, because there's a lot of things you have to talk about that you just can't talk about without spoiling it. And when I said earlier that this was the book that kind of ushered in, you know, the very dark a sort of dark trend in in young adult literature. And I think what I mean by that is like up until then a lot of books that you know dealt with serious issues, they may have only dealt with one serious issue, right? You know, it's like, oh, that girl has scoliosis. Mm-hmm. That's it, right? Or mm-hmm. oh, those kids' parents are getting divorced. And then that would, you know, you know, one tragedy per book. And in sure, this the one, the, uh, the Judy Bloom model. Yeah. And you know, in this one before the end of the movie, you find out that Charlie's best friend has committed suicide. His aunt Helen was killed violently in a car crash for which he blames himself, and she was molesting him. You've got poor Patrick, who's been dating a closeted football star, and you've got Emma, who it sounds like was pretty much date-raped her entire freshman year. And all I could think was none of the these poor children have been sexualized in any sort of regular way. See, I want to go back to, um, uh, you've made some very good points there, but I want to go back to for a second to his uh, friend who killed himself. Do they ever, and I think this is probably entirely right, but do they ever give any reason why he might have done it? In the movie, no. I And I don't remember in the book because it was so long ago. And obviously, you know, that, that, that can happen and it, it kills you inside if you don't know why did my friend do this. And I think that might be, you know, more appropriate. But I was wondering if I had missed something there. Well, he did say, um, Charlie did say at one point to um, 
Sam something like, I wish he'd left a note. Ah. And and that was about as much explanation as we got. But, I mean, to me, that is, I mean, these are some very dark themes. I mean, and, you know, all three of these kids are dealing with that. I mean, it says something about how uh, serious the problems are for your characters when the kid who's dating, you know, who is out and but dating a closeted guy has the best storyline, you know, <laughs> like that's the, he's got the least terrible background. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Plus he's dating the guy who's the uh, 2000s uh, Billy Zepka. No, I'm sorry. He is a hundred percent. The, uh, the actor, I can't remember his last name. Johnny Simmons. Sasha, who his Sasha, something that was in dazed and confused. The one wearing the overalls in dazed and confused. Oh yeah. They're twins. They're Good total call. twins. But the other thing that kind of gets me about the Patrick character and and his being as out as he obviously is, is, you know, like I said, I graduated from high school in 1993. So I'm right in there with these kids. And yes, I was in the South, but I can't imagine that, you know, Knoxville is that much more backwards than a suburb of Pittsburgh. And there was no guy in our entire high school who would have dared be out at high school then. Oh, absolutely. Remember, I went to a all-guys Catholic high school. That wasn't it happening. Well, Catholic, yeah, of course. <laughs> right. But, I mean, like, Randy, what would you say? I mean, because you're a little bit older than that, but, I mean, what was your experience of, you know, kids in high school and was anybody out? Nobody was out, period. End, end of sentence. Um, but, and also part of it was, well, it was a small town and somewhat isolated. Like it wasn't a, a college town, small town. It was just a small town. And in the late eighties, it's not like there were, um, really a lot of images in the media, movies and TV shows where you would actually, that could actually help you kind of realize that on your own. It's, yeah, I guess I'm mainly speaking from my own personal experience there that it took me another few years and actually going to university to actually fully uh, come out. Um, but I think with the way that this movie portrayed the characters and as, as Amy, as you described it with the Island of Misfit Toys, um, that they find each other and that they have the Rocky Horror Picture Show and they have others that can kind of help them kind of both deal with the issues that, that the characters were, were all dealing with as well as fully discover and accept who they are, which is probably something that might've helped like even in my case back in the late eighties. But yeah, it's, it's, it was definitely not my reality in the late eighties. This movie really read without getting, making this too much about, you know, Amy Watts's personal life history. But, um, I had a couple of friends in high school who were two years older than me um, named Matt and Ben, and you know, <laughs> they... and oh yeah, I didn't. I never thought about that. <laughs> I never made that connection until just now. But yeah, they kind of treated me a little bit like Charlie. We were all on newspaper staff together, and you know, they kind of recognized me as a kindred spirit. And that you know, when I was a freshman, they were juniors, so we did have two years together. Um, and after high school, they both came out and. I mean, and they they weren't a couple in high school and, and, you know, that they they were really good friends. But from what I understand, they 
They never found the other attractive. <laughs> 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 Not all gay men have to like all other gay men. Apparently. This is true. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> anyway, the um, but so and of course they were both in show choir. And one of my favorite memories of Matt was. Since we were on newspaper staff, we could go out for lunch to, quote unquote, sell ads. <laughs> we went out to lunch and we were in Matt's car and he had a really nice car and it had a sunroof. And Don't Go Breaking My Heart came on. <laughs> the radio. And he cranked it up and we were both singing along and he is like doing the gay finger snaps out the roof of the, you know, out the sunroof of the car. And yet. None of us thought he was gay. Well, it's because that just wasn't in the conversation. For, it just wasn't for an option. To, you, yeah. know? you know, and so that's why, uh, I mean, I mean, and, and Matt and I were really good friends, you know. Um, we hung out all the time, and, you know, if he was going to be out to someone, there's no reason why he couldn't have been out to me. And I don't even know that he was out to Ben, you know, and they were both in the same boat. And I don't even think they were talking about it to each other. And so that's one thing I felt is a little odd is that Patrick is, you know, he's playing Rocky. He's, you know, very effeminate in some of his actions, in some of his um, carriage and stuff at school. And I'm kind of wondering if he gets away with it in the way that Matt and Ben did. Matt more than Ben, but Matt um, of just, well, that's just not an option, you know. You're not going to get suspected of being gay because we don't think gay exists in our high school. Right. I or, mean, you have the, the uh, or oh, I'm if sorry, it's unrealistic, ahead. you know, if his being, you know, in some ways as out as he is, what would be anachronistic for that time and that place? Well, I also think he the the opening scene in the shop class mm-hmm. um, where he's a little bit of the class clown. That's kind of a very common defense mechanism as well oh absolutely yeah can we talk about the shop class uh, for a second sure do either of you recognize uh, that uh, shop class teacher no no that is the great tom savini who is that tom savini is an occasional actor but he's better known as being the special effects wizard for george romero for many years <laughs> uh, yes. he specializes in spurting wounds and exploding heads but he occasionally does takes on an acting job, and he's uh, pretty effective. All right, then. In By fact, the way, if you want to see an odd little uh, movie of him and Ed Harris, of all people, 1978, it's called Night Riders. It's <laughs> set at a renaissance fair that involves jousting on motorcycles, directed by George Romero. Oh, my God. And so it's, it's a, it it's a Kane Arthur pastiche. Of course it is. I took shop class in middle school, and I was the only girl in the class. I, I was feeling for poor Patrick and his clock. <laughs> <laughs> I never took shop. We had it in my high school, just never got around to taking it. I, I'm a contrarian by nature. And so when it t- came time to take home ec or shop, uh, and of course all the girls took home ec and all the boys took shop, I said, do I have to take home ec because I'm a girl? And they said, well, no, I guess not. And I was like, okay, I'll have shop then. You know, I was like, I didn't really care. I just wanted to do the thing they didn't think I should do. <laughs> so I, I guess I just found that very interesting, you know, Patrick's own uh, 
outness in a way with the sexuality. I mean, it's like it doesn't surprise me that around the Rocky Horror kids, of course, he can be as flamboyant as he wants. Certainly. But, you know, just to be I mean, and of course, you do have the pivotal scene in the cafeteria where one of the the football player with whom he's been having. Let's just call him his boyfriend. because That's essentially what it was. Uh, One of his boyfriend's friends, you know, calls him a faggot and or was it the friend or was it Brad that called him a faggot? It was the friend. It was the friend. I know it was the friend that tripped him. I didn't know if Brad said it. But, uh, no, Brad just Brad just didn't say anything. Oh, Brad didn't come to his defense, right? Right. You know, and that was kind of the first mention. I mean, that was like the first thing at that school. I mean, it's like it was surprising to me in some ways that he wasn't getting that throughout the entire film. Honestly. Mm-hmm. Just given what I remember of high school in that time era, in that era at that time. And how much did you love Mae Whitman's comedic turn in this movie? As Oh, Mae, Mae Whitman steals every scene she's in. I was never a huge fan. I'm going to admit this. I was never the biggest fan of Arrested Development. So I'm not the one to judge her work there, but I've loved her in other stuff. And this one just steals every scene. And I love her turn into the obsessive controlling girlfriend. I know. I mean, and that just that cracked me up with the with him saying, "Why does she want? Why does she call me as soon as I get home from school when I literally have nothing to talk about other than the bus ride home?" <laughs> because I yeah. knew those couples in high school, and you know, I, I, I feel like at the, the 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 pivotal scene in the party where they're playing Truth or Dare, Ugh. and he has that fantasy answer when asked. Um, you know something what how's your relationship going with Mary Elizabeth and he says i like to pretend one or one of one of the other of us has cancer and and i thought you know he should have given that answer instead of you know what actually happened i'm like that crowd probably would have thought the cancer thing was really funny <laughs> right <laughs> Oh, that's that was one of the more painful breakup scenes I've ever seen. Yeah, but it's so true in some ways because you know high school boys are dumb and they don't think about stuff, and high school girls are just as dumb. They're just dumb in different ways. Um, yeah. But uh, let's say both 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 sexes have their problems. No, I have a I have a question about this movie, and this relates to the theme uh, of this of this podcast, uh, first times. Um, did. They have sex. I don't think so. It seems like they danced around it. I don't think they did. Because I think that's when he kind of had his big revelation about what had happened with Helen. Mm-hmm. Um, because when Sam puts her hand on his thigh, it triggers a memory of Helen doing the same thing. And... And you think the same thing happened with him and uh, Elizabeth earlier in the movie. So, I, I, I don't know. I just don't think that... I don't think they did. And I have to say, that was another thing I found really charming about this movie. Is, you know, after the Sadie Hawkins dance, when he and Mary Elizabeth go back to her house. And, you know, it's clear they've been making out for a while. And, you know, they show us... That she's wearing her dress, which was such a 90s dress. I would have killed <laughs> for that dress for Junior Prom. Um, and uh, she's got her top, the top of the dress pulled down, but she's still wearing her strapless bra. And I was just like, oh, remember high school when you could have, you know, under the shirt, over the bra action? I'm like, nobody, you don't do that after a certain age. And it was so much 
fun and you know uh and i also just think that given kind of what he knew uh, sorry to go back to whether or not he and sam did it oh no 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 i'm not i i I never figured that he and sam did i'm talking about him and uh uh, mary beth mary elizabeth i thought you were asking me if at the end no 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 oh no he and mary elizabeth never did no okay you know this is a good time to get into since you brought it up the whole triggering of the memory here's my reservation about the movie the abuse thing feels like it's kind of dumped in there. Uh, and I have in my notes here, the big, big reveal, was it earned? I'm not entirely sure it was. I was, because I rewatched the movie this afternoon, and I think I could be convinced of that. It it feels uh, almost right. Like, just when you combine uh, his Charlie's blackouts and then the violence and everything like that, that there's something that something deep that he has really repressed and it it feels it felt right to me while i was watching the movie but i can be convinced that it wasn't earned well i also feel like there was um, a, a weird little bit of a switcheroo there in that you know we find out at the beginning that okay he's had troubles and then we find out pretty quickly that his best friend committed suicide and i think you know, we're kind of supposed to just think, oh, okay, that's what was causing the depression was the friend. Mm-hmm. And then, we, you know, you figure it out by the end of the movie that no, 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 his problems actually go way back to abusive aunt. I honestly thought she was in an asylum. Well, she had herself, I think the, the movie established that she had been abused when she was younger. And then we see the her... Um, that she had attempted suicide at one point, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so she, she did have a number of issues. And then with her death, uh, getting T-boned by the truck uh, and, and Charlie's own guilt about that, um, it, it definitely is a lot to, uh, to reveal in one movie about one character who we only see in flashback. I also think the other thing is I kind of think it's a little bit cheap in some ways to make a revelation that serious, a, a suspenseful thing, if that makes sense. No, I, I, I like, totally agree with you. Because you have this kind of constant flashbacking to Helen, and you know, you kind of think, okay, something's going on here. And then when you realize that she got hit by the truck, you think, oh, that was what was really going on with Helen. And then again, for it to, and then when the big revelation comes out, it's like, oh, that's a big shocker. And I'm like, you know, I really didn't need an M. Night Shyamalan twist for sexual abuse of a child. Mm -hmm. It it felt a little cheap to me somehow that way. So, I mean, I I mean, I, I don't mind that being part of the story. I just wish that it hadn't been revealed in quite the way it was. True. Though it does lead us to meeting uh, Joan Cusack, and Joan Cusack in the movie, I just have to take a second to admire that it's a nice measured performance, small as it is for Joan Cusack. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, because when I first saw this movie, I saw her name in the opening credits, and I spent the whole movie going, where's Joan Cusack? When's Joan going to show up? You know, and it turns out, oh, the last ten minutes of the movie. <laughs> well, look at the casting. The, the, the lead the, In the credits, the lead casting is, uh, I, I think Dylan McDermott gets top casting. In the opening no, credits. No, the kids get first. Really? Yeah. Okay. And But he did get the first adult credit. But the kids, it went Charlie, Sam, and Patrick in the credits. Okay. Are we talking um, the opening credits? 
Yeah. Uh, okay. Because what's his name? L- Lonergan, Liam, Logan, one of those boy names. Logan no. Lerman? Was that his name? Yeah, sure. Yeah, Logan Lerman. Are we talking the kid who plays Patrick? Charlie. Yeah. No, Patrick was Ezra. Oh, sorry. That's right. Char- Charlie's Logan, L- Logan Lerman, yeah. Um, and, and his performance is phenomenal. Oh, I mean, yes. I loved him as Patrick, even if I had some quibbles with whether or not, you know, that character would actually be able to behave the way he did. I thought, you know, uh, Ezra Miller captured it perfectly. Yes. Another question I have for you guys, and, and you can weigh in on this. When we're talking about the first kiss, I wrote down, is it fair slash responsible for Sam to kiss Charlie and to kiss him then like she did. Hmm, after the uh, confessions? No, 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 at the, the when, Christmas when party? She, at the Christmas party, when she tells him, I want your first kiss to be from someone who loves you, but she prefaces it all by saying, you know, you know I'm with Craig. You know, is she leading him on? Or is she kind of just expressing her own regret about her earlier sexual activities? Right, or is she just being completely honest and uh, giving a good friend his first his first kiss and being honest about this doesn't mean more than it's your first kiss. But is that is that fair to do if you have any inkling which she had to? I mean, I guess later in the film she indicates that she didn't, but it was shocking to me that she couldn't figure out that the kid was totally besotted with her. I think it was completely fair. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a really nice scene. I mean, I thought it was a nice scene, but I just thought. Is that, I mean, because that's clearly going to stoke the flames for his crush that much longer. This is true, but I still think it's a, it's a nice gesture from her, and I think it was honestly given. Okay. You guys are nicer to her than I was about that. Hey, um, fair. Uh, <laughs> no, Christmas party, is that the same one with the uh, accidental drugging? No. No. Okay. That's New Year's. Okay, good. That's a week later. Uh, and I want to compliment that scene because I have a very low patience for accidental drugging scenes because they're way overused. Uh, mm-hmm. This one, nicely done. Well, there are actually two because remember, he didn't know that the brownie he was eating was laced with marijuana. Well, that's what I'm talking about, the brownie one. Oh, that was at the beginning of the school year. I'm talking about, I guess he I guess he knew he was, oh yeah, that was the first night they all met him. Yeah, that was after the football game, right? Oh God, yes, yeah. you're right. I'm sorry. Oh, I thought you meant the acid trip. Oh, no, no. The acid, that was New Year's. Yeah, the acid is New Year's. And uh, the acid scene I have a problem with just because I would like to ban any future use of uh, emotional snow, snow angels in the movies. Aww. <laughs> no, more, no more emotional snow angels. Well, I don't know. I, can, I mean, he's tripping, and he probably did feel actually hot, and so rolling around in the snow felt good. And snow angel's kind of a natural motion when you're laying on your back in the snow. Yeah, but come on, they used it that way. Nah, he was tripping, whatever. Um, you just like snow angels, admit it. No, not really, but I mean, it doesn't bother me. I, I have to say, just I have a kind of recurring theme in the notes I took during the film, which is that kind of um, endearing cringe moment that... I, I had through a lot of this, you know, like some of the lines that they were saying to each other, like when we first meet Mary Elizabeth and Alice and some of their, I'm going to put this in air quotes, witticisms. And I'm just like, oh, God, 
I know I was that pretentious at one point. Please forgive me. Oh, yes. I have, and, I have written down the Radic Italian or something racist. <laughs> yeah. And then at the and the, But then also when she gets him home after the Sadie Hawkins dance and, you know, she brings up a bottle of wine and she puts on some jazz and she lights the fire. And I'm just like, this is the most clumsy seduction ever. And, you know, she's trying to be all suave and sophisticated, but it's actually coming off so clumsy. And I'm thinking... I'm not going to try and remember when I probably did something just like that, you know. And I think that's one of the reasons that the book was loved. And I think that's certainly one of the reasons that people that like the movie like the movie is, you know, taking you back to those moments of, oh, weren't we young and cringeworthy? Oh, goodness, yes. Of course, the uh, the the king of all awkward seduction scenes has still got to be Chandler and Phoebe on on the one where everyone finds out. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, I don't remember that. Oh, no, it's, 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 one, it's one where they're trying to uh, fake each other out because everybody has learned about Chandler and uh, Monica, but everybody's trying to fake everybody else out into admitting they know. Oh, okay. And Phoebe yeah. dances for Chandler? I'll have to rewatch this one. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not it's great. ringing bells. It, it's ringing <laughs> bells, but I'm not remembering it. It's, um, the one with, it's the one with they don't know, we know, they know, we know? Oh, God. Okay. Yes, that's... <laughs> And one of those episodes uh, where Matt Le- where it proves that Matt LeBlanc underappreciated. Yes, I love Matt LeBlanc. I'm I'm like I'm like it's me and Sarah Dessen that like episodes. The author Sarah Dessen, like we're the only people that get excited about it coming back. And presumably um, the people who get paychecks from it. Yeah. So another big question for you about Perks. One thing that a lot of people nitpicked about this movie when it came out was the tunnel scene. In the sense that, how could these kids not know that song, which is I, David Bowie's Heroes? I found that completely believable. Um, because it was before the internet. <laughs> that's that's well, the but I mean, to... wouldn't it have been on on the classic rock station? Heroes, possibly, possibly, but I don't think these kids would have been listening to a classic rock station. Although they did think that, you know, they got really excited when "Come On Eileen" came on, so that was a, <laughs> a bit of an unusual indicator of what they considered awesome music. Everybody um, always gets excited when "Come On Eileen" comes on because it's the only song everybody can dance to. Any party, put on "Come On Eileen," everybody will dance. <laughs> I was at a wedding in Ireland and asked the DJ to play it because that was the bride's mother's name. Everybody danced, including <laughs> the bride's mother, who was in her seventies. So you know. But I will say, going by the music that they're playing at various parties, I mean, we're talking people who are playing some Sonic Youth, some XTC, some New Order, something called Galaxy Five Hundred. I'm looking at the soundtrack list here. And uh, how much did you love that? One of my favorite bits of music was the um, XTC Dear God going back when, when you're going when um, Sam is narrating Patrick's backstory mm-hmm. of him and Brad getting together and all of that. Right. Yeah. And that was just such a perfect song. And and the thing is, is I don't even know that you get that you hear the lyrics. It's just if you know that that's the song because, you know, the tune then you're putting it together in your head and it was perfect. I like that kind of subtle music. Um, I looked up cause I knew I could, re- I remember that they reading somewhere that they changed the tunnel song from the book to the movie. 
um, because they couldn't get the clearance, I think, for the one that, or it was going to cost too much or something. Um, and you, have any of you looked this up? Do you know what the the song was in the book? Uh, no, no. Fleetwood Mac's "Landslide." Oh my! Uh, I'm How very bad on is that scene. I'm very bad on Fleetwood landslide. Mac. I, I, I don't know "Landslide." Yeah, you do. Well, I probably if you uh, made... the Smashing Pumpkins covered it in the Dixie on Chicks like their unplug. I took my love and I took it down. Climbed a mountain and I turned around And I saw my reflection in the snow-covered hills Well, the landslide brought me down people our age or my age i mean a lot of people didn't know that song if they didn't listen to classic rock stations Mm -hmm. but then when the smashing pumpkins covered it and it was a hit you know it kind of brought it um also who's done a cover of it recently isn't there Um, a a woman that's done a cover of it recently um like the dixie chicks Chicks smashing pumpkins uh, dixie chicks uh stacy kent in 2007 there was a glee version you know the song. Look it up on YouTube. Not right now, or if you want to, you can even loop it into the podcast here when you're editing. But you know Landslide. I am not going to sing it to you because I do not sing. I, I think um, I think my brain is pulling up the Dixie Chicks version. It's the one that goes uh, something Landslide because I built my life around you. Time makes you bolder. Children get older. I'm getting older too. That one, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so here's, um, I found an interview with the author um, the, the, where he mentions the change in song. And he says, Landslide is a beautiful song, and I would have loved to include it, but it's a very soft ballad. The problem was when we got to the tunnel scene, I just thought, we need something that's not soft. So I'm wrong, it wasn't clearances. Uh, we need something that's driving, that's epic in nature, and Heroes was a perfect fit. Alexander Patsavas, our music supervisor, it was her idea. Because I told her, I know I've got a tall order for you, and I'm sorry, but I need an epic song that I didn't know in 1992. And she came up with Heroes. Hmm. And the interviewer says, that's the bone I wanted to pick, because I can't believe the kids had never heard of Heroes until it came on the radio. And then still couldn't find the record or figure out for months who sang it. It's one of David Bowie's most famous songs. And it says that that the author laughs, and he says, you and John Malkovich and Jim Powers, both producers on the film, which, did you know John Malkovich was a producer, uh, could all gang up on me and say, we don't believe it. And I will put my hand on a Bible and say, in the early 90s, David Bowie was Let's Dance to me. He was that guy. The whole 70s Bowie, because I was more into grunge, I came late to him. Listen, if you say to me, the kid's not knowing heroes, it's not realistic, I will cop to it. Anyone who has a bone to pick, I can't argue. But I swear to God, it was real. That's... I'm sorry, Randy, agree go with ahead. That. I was going to say, I basically agree with his assessment there. I, as you guys know, because I've been tweeting about it earlier this year, I really hadn't gotten into a lot of Bowie until, well, this year. Um, so I, I knew Heroes, but I didn't really know Heroes, and I definitely wouldn't have known it in high school. And I really only kind of knew Heroes for the first time uh, in Moulin Rouge. Uh, oh. Where, yeah. So well, where I was thinking in the for Godzilla, the Wallflowers had a hit with it. They covered it and had a hit with it. I for the had Godzilla soundtrack. 
Yeah. No, I mean, it was if you were listening to Top 40 in whatever your Godzilla remake came out, yeah. um, you, you would have heard that song. Yeah. My gateway into Bowie, of all things, was the British TV series Life on Mars. In, in which, okay. In which the David I Bowie. Win. What's that? I had a poster of David Bowie in my college dorm room. You people, come on, catch up. Um, <laughs> hey, Life on Mars was a great show, too. Life on Mars was a great show, but I knew about Bowie before then. Cough. <laughs> Fine, you and my wife, you David Bowie people. But I really liked, um, I think I saw The Man Who Fell to Earth in high school for some reason. And so that made me want to listen to his music. Anyway, I have the sadly out of print criterion of man on earth. So the, um, but I love heroes in that song. And I love that scene because, you know, I remember that, you know, being in the suburbs, you know, in Knoxville, we all had cars. We didn't have nice new cars. We all had hand-me-downs or we borrowed our parents' cars or whatever, but we were, we, we were driving kids. You know, you got your license when you turned 16 and I remember so much of my high school was about driving around and playing music with the windows down and singing along and, and things like that. And so that tunnel scene to me just felt so perfect, uh, uh, you know, a perfect capsule of that moment and that feeling. And, and I think that Heroes is a perfect song for that. I think his music direct music supervisor did a great job. I mean, and, and they even had it cued so that. Um, when she is first kind of doing her big Titanic pose in the back of a truck, um, she, uh, it's the line you're hearing is, you could be queen, you know, and I will be king. And they've got it queued up to just those exact lyrics, which is, you know, how she feels. And obviously how, you know, and Charlie wants to, if she's going to be queen, Charlie wants to be king. And it was just perfect for that moment. And then to loop it around to the end of the movie, when um, Patrick and Sam come and visit him, and they're back from college to visit him, and he's the one that stands up in the back of the truck, they don't, they start playing the song in the movie, but it's silent on the soundtrack. We're only hearing his narration until he bursts out, until they come out of the tunnel. And I thought that was Again, a really nice touch on the director's part to hold off on the music until just that moment. Absolutely. It could have been horribly cheesy and a little too on the nose, but it actually works in that moment. I'm still in shock over trying to visualize that scene with Landslide playing. (laughs) (laughs) That's just, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The... uh, article that I found, you know, I just typed it. I'm a librarian, so of course I go to Google. And uh, I typed in, you know, in, in, to see what the song was in the book, and uh, found an article on cinemablend.com that was uh, the seven big differences between the movie and the book by someone who's a fan of both. And um, I know you guys haven't read the book, but um I kind of want to defend my position of not really liking the book that much, but liking the movie by just highlighting some of the things that are different. First of all, in the book, it is an epistolatory epistle. I can't say that word. It's a letter book. And, um, epistolary. Yeah, go ahead. Um, you say that. And, uh, 
and that's how it is. So, you know, the narration we get in the movie of Dear Friend, that's how the whole book is written. And in the movie, obviously, that's not going to work to do it that way the whole time. So you're not stuck in Charlie's head through the entire film. Is it entirely and, a diary in the book? Well, it's yeah, well, it's those letters that are like a diary. And so I think by seeing you know, the scenes that we see. And I mean, I think if you went back and rewatched it, what you'd find is you don't, you, you know, you realize you don't see any scenes that don't have Charlie in them. So it still is first person in the sense that we're not getting an omniscient view. You yes. Know, we're only seeing the things that Charlie could have seen himself, but just by it not being entirely in his head, as it would be if you're reading these, you know, diary like letters, I think that made it a lot better. Um, the other thing I think that was different was... Actually, if, if you could hold off on that sec for one second, Amy, I just mm -hmm. had a thought about mm -hmm. something you said earlier about how all of the kids are damaged in some way. Right. And well, the Charlie's... Three leads. I the mean, three leads. But... We don't really get that much backstory on the, on the secondary teenagers. No, but we do see one more character in the movie who's also damaged, though she finds her own way out of it. And through Charlie's viewpoint, and that's Charlie's sister with Ponytail Derek. Right. And, and the, the only things we see about that relationship are from Charlie's perspective. Well, and apparently in the book, that's a much bigger plot line. Mm -hmm. It does seem a little bit truncated in the movie, but it's about but the I right think size, that's I think. Fine. I mean, yes. one of my biggest complaints about movies these days is that most of them could be edited more tightly than they are. Oh, God, yes. And I felt like this movie there weren't scenes I would have cut. You know, there was no time when I was looking at my watch and going, why are you showing me this? You know, I get it. Move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was very well edited. And I think if that means cutting down that subplot, go for it. Um, but if we're going to sidetrack onto the sister, I'll say that was another thing I really liked about this was that even though there's a lot of shitty things happening to these kids, at least for Charlie, he's got a great, family oh yeah yeah and in so much teen literature and film and tv you know the parents are absent you know you you never see a parent at all like um when i watched fast times at ridgemont high for a college class that was all about teen films um you never actually see a parent in the entirety of fast times yeah. If, if I mean, you, you ever rewatch that movie, a couple of siblings. If you ever rewatch that movie, Fast Times, you'll know you never see a parent. Huh. And I mean, you hear them, you know, like either on the other end of the telephone or through a door or whatever, but you never see them. And and that's true for a lot of teen films. And so I like that you know his parents seem to love him, and especially like that his siblings really loved him. And were really invested in him, and he was as well. I mean, he was protective of his sister. And at the end, when he calls her at that party, and that's the thing you'll notice. We know it's the early 90s because nobody has cell phones. Yeah, yes. And, um, you know, he, she, he calls her at her friend's house, and, you know, she immediately takes him seriously, sends the police to her house. I mean, she is there for him. And when yeah. his older brother comes back for a visit, he's protective. He wants to know what's going on. How are you doing, kid brother? He's not, you know, I mean, they're, you know, they're having a little bit of a older, younger brother relationship, but it's, uh, you know, there's a limit to it. And he's obviously cares about his brother. 
So I really liked that. I liked that you had, you know, even though bad things are happen, happening, at least Charlie does have a family that loves him. And, and that felt real, you know, to, to, to see the family and for them to be involved. And I, and I especially even like the touch. Um, you know, there's kind of a theme running through the whole movie about how Charlie's trying to make everybody else happy. And I think that's something, I mean, you know, I'm no psychologist, but from what I understand, that's a very common reaction to children that have a common reaction for children that have been abused is to try and always be pleasers. Yes. And, you know, um, Sam mentions it to him, you know, a couple other people kind of mention, you know, what do you want? What do you want? And at the very end when he's doing the narration and he talks about being in the hospital and that the, the worst day was when the doctor had to tell his parents what Aunt Helen did. So, I mean, there he is. He's, you know, he's hospitalized. He's talking about his own abuse. I mean, all these horrible things. And yet he still thinks the worst thing was seeing his parents get hurt. Mm -hmm. Hmm, Yeah. And, and I, I thought that was very true to the character and also again showed how much this family cares about each other. And a religious family, without that being the point of the movie, which I thought was interesting. You really don't see that that much. Well, and apparently that's different than the book. Um, in the book, um, the uh, Charlie believes in God, but he says his parents aren't religious. Um, and it says, uh, this person at least says, that adding religion gives the setting a bit of a different context, but it allows Chabosky an easy way to segue from scene to scene. It is a nice segue from that to the uh, acid trip. Well, I mean, it also, you know, because they're going to Christmas Mass. They're going to Easter Mass, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) Yes. Maybe those are the only two Masses they go to. Maybe they're those kind of Catholics. I don't know. Well, they also went to Ash Wednesday. Oh, that's right. I loved that. I loved Mae Whitman, (laughs) you know, the controlling girlfriend. Like, what have you got on your forehead? (laughs) And she does the mom thing of, like, licking her thumb to wipe it off. Oh, uh, which, so awful. And I want um, to show that to people and just tell them, don't do that. <laughs> um, well, you know, that's something I didn't encounter until I lived here in Athens. Roman uh, Catholics? Well, the Ash Wednesday ashes. Um, just because, I don't know. And I guess the only reason I encountered it here is because I have a friend that's Catholic that does that. Mm-hmm. Um. Very, very Protestant, the area of Knoxville I grew up in. <laughs> um, so, so what were the other major differences from the novels and the movie? Well, and well, there were some others, but the big one that stood out to me was, um, and it might be a big reason why I liked the movie better than the book, is if you notice, if I point it out to you now, you'll probably think about it, but in that Christmas gift scene, we don't see what Charlie's last present to Patrick was, Right. Like we see Mary Elizabeth open the jeans and, um, you know, he gets the suit jacket and that. And Patrick stands up and says that, oh, Charlie must be my secret Santa. But he doesn't, you know, he's not, we don't see him opening a gift that night. Apparently in the book, Charlie's last present to Patrick at Christmas is a, quote, suicidal heart-wrenching poem. Eh? Hmm. He writes him a poem. And I'm thinking, yeah, if, if, if the book included teenage poetry, 
That probably definitely <laughs> made me like it less than the movie. <laughs> it was okay. bad enough that we had the Smiths in the movie. We didn't need more bad teenage poetry. I mean, there's Vogon poetry, and then there's teenage poetry. And then there's the Smiths. No, I like the Smiths. Um, I think I, I mean, may have an overreaction to them from high school. Well, I like the Smiths just because, to me, the Smiths are so morose that it kind of cycles back around. I mean, like, I find the Smiths hilarious. <laughs> like, I mean, how can you not laugh at please, 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 let me get what I want? Lord knows it would be the first time. You can't take that seriously. That's hilarious. Yeah, fair enough. So any, uh, I feel like we've been rambling for a while. Any other final thoughts from either of you about the film? Um, just following up on just what you were talking about, the, the differences from the, the book to the movie, um, I always find the process of adaptation to be fascinating um, in terms of taking something that works in one medium, aspects of it that won't work in a different one, and how what is often different people will try to interpret that or change that. And here, uh, Chbosky wrote the book, and then he wrote and directed the movie. So I, I find it particularly fascinating that he was willing and able to actually kind of make some somewhat significant changes to to aspects of the uh, the story to actually um, make it better and work better as a movie. Absolutely, it's it's always interesting to see authors that are willing to make those sacrifices that they don't find their work so inviolate that it can't be adapted only just slapped up on the screen. Well, and as far as I'm aware, this is his first ever, I don't know if it's his first screenplay, but I think it's it might be, and it's his first directing, uh, directing job. Um, and I thought it was very well directed. I mean, I'm impressed that somebody who is not a seasoned director made this movie that was so well put together. I mean, like I said, you know, both the way the tunnel scene was shot and then the way... The second tunnel scene, the way the sound was done in that. I mean, that's that's some skillful directing there. Absolutely. Though he did do a movie in 95 called The Four Corners of Nowhere. It was an oh, independent film. Oh, he did? Film. Okay. okay. So I vaguely remember the title for some reason. Uh, any other thoughts before we move on to next week's selections? I just want to make one point. We're talking about Chabosky as a director. You'll never guess what TV show he worked on. I can because I'm looking at it on IMDb right now. Yep. Okay, okay, wait. I'm not looking at IMDb. Give me one hint. Uh, peanuts. Peanuts? Like like Snoopy or, or like... <laughs> like Jimmy Carter know? peanuts. Jimmy Carter peanuts. Peanuts. I have no idea. Jericho. Oh, that's right. I thought they were the hot sauce. The hot sauce? No, I'm pretty sure they oh, were the, the nuts. the hot sauce is Roswell. I'm, yes. getting my, I'm getting my fan campaigns confused. I never remember <laughs> what food stuff we're supposed to send in protest anymore. <laughs> I cover all my glad. bases. I send peanut pretzel M&Ms and call it a day. <laughs> I'm just glad Netflix, Netflix renewed Orange is the New Black so we didn't have to send them maxi pads. <sighs> At least those would be lightweight to mail. <laughs> this is true. A bit and though. you could probably, like, if you got the ones with wings, you could write the address on the back and then just use the wings to seal it and just mail it on as its own envelope. <laughs> All I'm right, like, I think we should, uh, we should basically wrap up. On that note, we should move on. <laughs> All so, right. Randy, you picked our theme. What theme did you pick? 
Yes, given that we're now on the cusp of summer turning to autumn, uh, I had chosen the theme for episode two to be seasons and left it up to the two of you to interpret that as you will. All right. So, Joe, what'd you pick for us? You're picking the movie? I have the movie this time around. And uh, it's not the most season-oriented thing of all time, but fall always makes you think of Thanksgiving, which personally I think is probably one of the greatest holidays because, hey, I like to cook a mean turkey dinner. So I picked something that was filmed in Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving in the 1970s. And I picked it because, A, I've never actually seen it, which, considering the director, is bad. And B, I want to give it a chance because I was never a huge fan of the particular band's music. We are watching Martin Scorsese's concert film, The Last Waltz, from 1978. I don't want to, but I will. <laughs> My other choice was going to be, since it's it's coming up on October, to see Halloween, but I defer to your delicate sensibilities. Thank you for not making me watch horror. All right. Well, so we'll watch the band. I, I, there may, I may, I don't know. God, okay. If Beautiful Creatures took gin, what would The Last Waltz require? Oh, The Last Waltz requires Southern comfort. All right. I can handle that. All right. I'm going to make you guys read something. And as far as I can tell from your good reads, Joe, you have not read this. And Randy, I have no idea if you've read it yet or not. So you can tell I me. I probably have not. Okay. The book is called Last Days of Summer by Steve Kluger. And that's K-L-U-G-E-R. And here I'll read you the description on Goodreads. The hilarious and heartwarming story about a down-and-out kid who finds inspiration in his favorite baseball hero. In Brooklyn, 1940, a wisecracking, baseball-loving 12-year-old boy, Joey Margulis, is in desperate need of a hero. His rich father has recently divorced his mother, leaving her all but penniless, and she is forced to move herself and her son to an Italian-dominated part of Brooklyn. He's the only Jew in the area. Constant abuse from other boys in the neighborhood prompts Joey to send letters to Charlie Banks, an up-and-coming star with the New York Giants, asking for a home run so he can tell everyone that it was for him. Joey uses every trick in the book to get what he wants, and the friendship that comes out of their simple correspondence will change them both forever. This improbable friendship is woven together through letters, postcards, notes, telegrams, newspaper clippings, report cards, and ticket stubs, and includes a colorful cast of supporting characters. That's your book. I have read this. Well, go update your Goodreads, and you're going to read it again. Have you, you read bet- it, Randy? I have not read it, no. Oh, it's, it's a wonderful novel. I love anything and everything Steve Kluger writes. And so, but this one, you know, it's, well, I mean, the title's right there, Last Day of Last Days of Summer. But, you know, we're, we're Labor Day. We're kind of, the summer's winding down and baseball season's getting crucial at this point. So I feel like this will be a good <laughs> Not for me. White <laughs> well, socks, you horrible we people. We know where you live. Um, if you so. want, you can change the color of those socks from white to red, Joe. Steve Kluger's a Red Sox fan. Well, there you go. You'll like it. <laughs> All right. And I did check. It is available. At, there are three copies not checked out at your public library, Joe. And, the Oak Park Main uh, Library? And, Randy, I don't know where you live, so I couldn't perform the same service. It's okay. I just checked, and it's available on uh, in iBooks, so I'll just it's buy a, it. Well, I didn't check iBooks, but I knew it was available as a Kindle edition. So oh, Either or would work. And I, just to give you just to give you a, a hint of what Steve Kluger is like, Steve Kluger is an author and playwright born in Baltimore, Maryland, in 1952, who grew up with only two heroes: Tom Seaver and Ethel Merman. <laughs> so I think you will I think you will like this book. 
It sounds like also it'll give me a nice break from reading The Fault in Our Stars. Which I haven't read yet. Although, I, uh, here's the review I gave this book on Goodreads. I don't know what there is not to like about this book, even if it does poke phone at my beloved Ethel Merman. While reading this book, I laughed out loud in public places, stayed up far too late to finish it, and cried so loud I scared the cats. <laughs> so there, there may be tears. And on that note, everyone, we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. And remember, the movie will be The Last Waltz from 1978. And the book is The Last Days of Summer. Pardon me, Just Last Days of Summer by Steve Kluger. Goodbye. I'm Joseph Finn. You can find me at, at Joseph Finn. That's J-O-S-E-P-H-F-I-N-N on Twitter. Amy, uh, want to give out your Twitter? Sure, I'm Amy Watts. That's W-A-T-T-S. And Randy? Uh, my Twitter handle is Randwa, R-A-N-D-O-I-S. It was a nickname bestowed on me by a friend who bestows excellent nicknames. Okay, so I totally um, didn't get the French thing. <laughs> so in my head, you've been randois. <laughs> well, good night, everybody, and thanks for listening. Till next time. Goodbye. Oh, oh.